Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Due to time and money constraints, changes will be coming to the podcast in the month of November. Episodes will be airing bi-weekly, and I'll be moving to a non-guest format. If you'd like to suggest topics or have questions you'd like answered about writing and publishing, feel free to email me at mindy at mindymcginnis.com or tweet at mindymcginnis. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate through GoFundMe by searching for Writer Writer Pants on Fire or check out the link in the episode credits. Today's guest is Tara Gilboy, who holds a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from the University of British Columbia, where she specialized in writing for children and young adults. Her middle grade novel, Unwritten, was published by Jollyfish Press just this month. She teaches creative writing in San Diego Community College's Continuing Education Program and for the Penn Writers in Prisons Program. Tara joined me today to talk about selling her book without an agent and how to process criticism from critique partners. Walk through an enchanted autumn wood where leaves shine like red candy apples by day and blood is spilled by flesh-eating monsters at night. The rules are simple. Do not travel from the past. Do not linger after dark. Do not ignore the calling. The Wood by Chelsea Babolsky. My listeners are always interested to learn about how successful authors made their sales. Now, you sold your debut to a publishing house on your own, which is something that is really intimidating to a lot of people. So why don't you tell us about that process and why you determined to go that route as well? I had written another book before this one. And for that book, I had found an agent pretty quickly. I worked with her for about a year and that book had been out on submission and ultimately never sold. When I wrote this one, I thought, I have an agent already. Great, this will be easier. But then when I had sent her the book and she said, you know, this book is so much different than the first one and I'm not really comfortable with fantasy, I had sent it out to some publishers I found through SCBWI. Jollyfish was one that I had found actually through SCBWI. And then I heard back from them pretty quickly. They were interested. They asked me some questions and then it kind of just became a waiting game. But I think it helped that I had kind of seen the whole submission process already with an agent. I still probably recommend for people to have an agent just because I think it saves you a lot of trouble, you know, and a lot of time trying to send, send all of that out. And so when it comes to that submission process, is it much different than actually querying agents or is the process pretty similar? I think it's very similar. It's just, you know, paying close attention, I think, to what each publisher wants and then making sure that you're following their submission guidelines. Yeah, it's pretty pretty similar to sending out to agents, I would say. Sometimes publishers will ask a few other questions about where your book kind of fits in the market that I didn't always see with agents. Did you submit to more than one house or did you pick Jollyfish for various reasons that they looked good to you? I had submitted, I think, to two different houses. I had picked Jollyfish, you know, really, really specifically because um, I like the work that they did. I have a short story in an anthology that is with Jollyfish, and I can say that it definitely was a positive experience. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I, I love them there. They are just so responsive and supportive of their authors. Um, so I've been really happy with them. 
Now, with the other house that you submitted to but did not go with, did you hear back from them in terms of editorial feedback? Did they give you any types of reasons for passing if they did pass? Yeah, actually they did. I had heard back from them and they had given me some really positive feedback and said that they liked the book, uh, but they had felt that it was too close to a similar book that they already had out on their list. So that was probably why I had targeted them because I (laughs) knew that they had similar books, but it just made us a bit too similar. That is tricky when you are in that situation where you're trying to target houses or agents that represent what you write because they represent or publish something similar, yet it can't be so similar that they're acquiring a competing title. That is a really fine tightrope to walk. I think it's just a lot about finding that one person, you know, somebody who really loves your book and is willing to kind of champion it. I, you know, I had somebody tell me once that it's kind of like finding Cinderella's shoe. You know, you just need that one right fit, that right editor, that right agent. And it can be very difficult to sort through some of that feedback because so much of it is, in fact, subjective. And you have to be able to see what kind of elements are resonating or not resonating with whoever your reader may be, critique partners, agents, editors, publishing houses, whoever you might be bouncing your text off of. My rule, my personal rule in using critique partners, that if one person says it, it's an opinion. If two people say it, it's probably correct. And if three people say it, then it's absolutely the case. So for example, if I have a character that I love and I think is funny, and one person says, she's not funny, she's just annoying. Like, well, maybe you just don't like her humor. Well, if two people say it, eh, that's not good. If three people say it, I'm flat out wrong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much been my experience too. My workshop group is full of just, you know, these wonderful people that I like trust completely with my work. So yeah, if we we have more than one person in that group telling me something, chances are that they are right. I remember they all were telling me something when I was writing an early draft of Unwritten and I was resisting them. I think I resisted them for like a good six months. And then it took me that long to realize that they were right. And then I ended up cutting like, mm-hmm. I think it was like 50 pages or mm-hmm. something. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were right. It made the book better. My very first manuscript, well, the first YA manuscript that I ever finished, I had a critique partner whose opinion I trust completely. She told me three times, Mindy, you need to change this to first person presence. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do first person present. That's what everybody's doing. She's like, Mindy, you need to change this to first person present. And then finally, I put it in first person present and I was reading it. And I'm like, yeah, that is actually like much better. <laughs> But switching a tense like that, that's difficult in revision because you miss all those ED verbs. I mean, you're whacking off a lot of ED verbs and then you're just like, oh man, there's another one. Like five years later, I'm reading it again. And I'm like, shit, how did I miss that? It's those kind of changes, I think, when we know like how much work it's actually going to be to incorporate them that I think is kind of when we get resistance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. If it's going to be really hard, no, I'm not going to. I don't. I mean, it's nice to have an opinion, <laughs> but no. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that particular manuscript, I think if I had listened and made those changes sooner, I might have had more luck. Uh, that remains unpublished. However, I can't say that for sure because it was an urban fantasy right when nobody cared anymore. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> but they say sometimes, you know, you just put it in a drawer for a little bit and wait for the market to come back around. Yep, and it's you never been know. down there for 15 years, so fingers crossed. Coming up, 
exercises to help you capture middle grade voice, and how to find critique partners both online and in real life. The Greatest Treasure, a Most Dangerous Magic Growing up with a traveling circus, Genevieve Flannery is accustomed to a life most teenagers could never imagine. But when her mother, Delia, falls to her death during a show, she leaves behind a dangerous inheritance that forces Jenny into a frightening new reality, her life now interrupted by the terrors only Delia could see. As the visions around Jenny grow stronger and her magical legacy becomes even more menacing, she's not sure who she can trust. And if she fails to secure Delia's ancient secret, Jenny could lose everyone she holds dear. Slight by Jennifer Summersby. You write middle grade. That's a voice that is particularly hard to deliver. So what tips do you have for writers about producing an authentic middle grade voice? You know, that is really, really tough because I think you're right that middle grade is such a really, really hard voice to get just right. And there are so many writers who are just fantastic at it. Rita Williams Garcia's One Crazy Summer. Mm -hmm. And I think she is just probably one of the best writers out there for capturing, you know, that middle grade voice. I don't actually think I'm very good at capturing a first person middle grade voice. I tend to write in third person a lot. I just kind of think that's how my kind of natural writing voice and writing rhythms are. You still have to capture that middle grade mindset, I think is probably the most important thing. I do a lot of exercises trying to like inhabit what it feels like to be a middle grader. And, you know, we do writing exercises where we think back to what it felt like to be that age. Mm -hmm. What were you afraid of? What were you embarrassed about? Um, who were your best friends? What was it like going to school? And just kind of trying to remember that and look at old photographs and just kind of really try to place yourself in that experience again, I think is a lot more important than kind of trying to create a voice. Because I think sometimes it can come off as, at least for me anyways, it can come off as like forced when I'm like consciously saying, okay, I'm going to create this certain voice. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm really just inhabiting my character and living in that character's experience and mindset, it kind of comes a little more naturally to me. But that, and then just reading tons and tons of middle grade. Rita Williams-Garcia, her books are amazing. I always read hers when I'm looking to be inspired for that middle grade voice. Absolutely. I think middle grade is probably the most difficult voice to nail. I personally have attempted it once in a short story that I wrote. And I handed it off to my nephew, who was the right age range at the time. And I was like, I want you to tell me if this works for you. Like, do I have the voice right? Am I writing a fifth grade boy? And he texted me back about two weeks later. He's like, well, Aunt Mindy... I have some thoughts about that story. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so uh, I did not do it correctly. And in general, my content, the way I lean, the way that I write is a little too dark and occasionally too graphic for middle grade. I don't personally have that sense of wonder that is necessary. I'm more of a ruminator. I think that that voice is very difficult and people that can do it like Rita Williams Garcia, you mentioned obviously excellent, excellent at nailing that voice and uh, the experience of being that age, which is so personality forming and everything about that experience and that time is vital to who you become as a human being. And I think that it is absolutely unique and a unique age range to write for. And it takes a very special skill set. Becoming who they're going to be. I think that's 
probably part of why I love it so much. Um, but yeah, that's also what makes it particularly difficult. I want to backtrack a little bit. You were talking about a writer's group that you use. A lot of people send me emails or tweet me and they ask me, how did you find your critique partners? Where did you meet these people that you bounce your books off of? I met mine, all of my critique partners, on Agent Query Connect, which is a writer's forum. And I have not been there in a long time, so I'm not sure how active it is now. What advice do you have for writers who are searching for a group or just critique partners? Where can people find other people to share their work with? I found mine, actually, when I was in grad school, I had taken a lot of classes with them. And then after we all graduated, we were kind of panicking, like, hey, we don't have teachers to give us feedback anymore. What are we going to do? And so we kind of formed this group and we do it online where we workshop. We do once a week and we post the week before and then workshop the following week. You know, I think taking writing classes are a great way to meet other writers. And then too, you get the opportunity to kind of workshop with them in class a bit, see how they go about it. And if they're the kind of people that you want to continue workshopping with. I know I have a lot of students in my creative writing class who wanted to workshop more than we were doing in class. So they kind of form their own workshop group outside of class. And now they meet, like, I think they meet for an hour or two before our class starts um, so that they can kind of, you know, get additional feedback on their stories. I think SCBWI is a great place to meet people too and to kind of form workshop groups because everybody does it a little differently, I think. And you want to make sure that they're the right people for you too. With me, I'm so fussy about workshop groups and I'm so fussy about the way that we workshop in class because I think you have to be really careful because they can do a lot of damage too. You know, they can get into a different dynamic that you don't always want to have. I always tell my, my writing students, I'm like, if, when you come out of a workshop, you should leave feeling like super energized and like, you know, what needs to improve in your draft, but you're like really excited to, to go and revise it. Not kind of leaving feeling like, oh, this is awful. I never want to write again. It's important, I think, to feel really energized and supported, but also that the feedback is honest too. So. There's a fine line between helpful criticism and simply tearing someone down. I myself offer critiques online. I am very, very hard on the stuff that I look at, but I always give compliments as well. I will always find things that you are doing right and let you know what you're doing right, but I will not stand on telling you what you're doing wrong as well. But then I also provide options. Here's how I think you could fix this. And of course, anyone is always welcome to take or leave advice from anyone, even someone that you're paying for an edit. The person that knows Mm -hmm. your manuscript the best is, in fact, you. So that is also kind of a hard thing to balance because it is true that you are the person that knows your book best and knows what is most true to the story and the plot and the voice. But you also have to balance when you're hearing from someone, this isn't working. And if definitely if you're hearing from more than one person, this isn't working. Sometimes you have to redefine what you want Perhaps. I think that's always the first Mm -hmm. question is what is your goal? Are you looking to publish? Are you looking to have a career? Or do you just want to have a story, a physical book that you created that you want to have to share with a friend or a family member, whatever the case may be? I think as someone that has been sharing critiques with other writers for 10, 15 years now, it's is something that because I myself am somewhat calloused now, uh, I'm just accustomed to 
getting criticism. I am accustomed to hearing what is wrong. And usually the thing is, most of the time you already know what's wrong. You just (laughs) have it confirmed when it comes back to you. And the funny thing is, you either react to that extremely defensively because you know it was wrong and now you're pissed or (laughs) you're just like, oh, okay, that hurts. But yeah, I know. Time and practice gets you to that second reaction. Something I catch myself saying a lot when I'm workshopping with my my writing group is, dang it, I thought for sure I was going to get away with that. And they always laugh because as soon as you find yourself thinking, can I get away with this? Mm -hmm. Like chances are you can't Mm -hmm. get away with it. I had a really interesting experience just this summer. I had written a book that was supposed to release this fall. I had then pitched an idea that deals with the opioid crisis, a novel about the opioid crisis. And my publisher was like, oh, this, this is important and it's timely and we need to get it out sooner rather than later. So they interrupted my publishing schedule, pushed the book that was supposed to release this fall of 2018 to winter of 2020, had me write the opioid book. So that is actually coming out this coming March. So I had written this book. It was already finished. It had already been turned in. I already had the edit letter back. We were far along in the process. My publisher bought the heroin book and they said, okay, we're going to move forward with this. And so I just dropped that other manuscript. It just fell off the side of the table, crushed my ass to get the other one done, got it put away. I have due dates for the edits for the book that has been finished now for, you know, a year and a half. And I email my editor and I'm like, hey, I still have your edit letter. I'm assuming you just want me to use that. You don't want to look at it again. He's like, nope, just go off those edits. I'm like, okay, fair enough. So I had this experience where I opened up a book that I had not worked on or looked at in 18 months. And I read the feedback and I read the edit letter and everything. I'm like, tick, 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 tick. Yep, I knew all that was wrong with it. And there wasn't even much of an emotional reaction because... I had been so divorced from it for so long. And it was very interesting diving into a manuscript that I had not touched in quite a while, looking at the notes and rereading and forgetting even things that I had written and being like, oh, wow, that was really good. Nice job. And then, oh, my God, why did you even put that in there? That's ridiculous. It doesn't fit the character. It doesn't fit. I mean, everything about that is stupid. Why did you do that? Right. So just having that space, that emotional distance It was amazing how quickly I went through those revisions. I think I revised that entire book in, I'm going to say nine days. And I turned it around and I sent it to my editor and I was like, look, I know this is fast, but I think I did a good job. And I think this is why I got my response this morning. And he was like, yeah, you actually did a phenomenal job. I have some very small nitpicks for you here. This is pretty much in the can. So that distance is so helpful. And I I advise anyone, if you're not working on a deadline, put your manuscript away, let it sit, let it ruminate, divorce yourself from it for a little bit before you come back. So you don't have that emotional, uh, defensive reaction to criticism. It's almost like, you know, reading it as someone else would read the book, you know, um, when you can get that kind of distance. Yeah, which is not something that happens very often. I had looked over what some of my old stuff, not that I was revising it, but just because I was cleaning out the house and finding stuff. And, and it was funny because I had stories that I really like kind of forgotten mm-hmm. even what happened, mm-hmm. you know, as I was working on them. And, you know, I, you, you start to kind of like anticipate things, you know, as an outside reader would. Lastly, can writing be taught or is it intuitive? 
and where to find Tara online. So you mentioned being a writing teacher. I enjoy talking mm-hmm. to people that teach writing because I have to share that I suck at teaching writing because I never had mm-hmm. any type of formal training. All of my structure, all of my pacing, all of that just comes from being a consumer and having been reading from a very young age and watching TV and watching movies and just absorbing story structure, plot, character building, pacing, all those things. I also know many people that have extensive coaching in the craft who have master's degrees. They are excellent writers as well. So there's many different paths to becoming a writer. I had a question. I'm always tweeting and asking people, hey, does anybody have a question they want me to pose to someone or anything that they're wondering about that they'd like to hear about on the podcast? And I had a listener ask how much of writing is instinctual and how much can be taught. So I thought you would be a good person to ask that question to. It's really interesting um, how you were just saying, you know, how you did it yourself with, you know, kind of reading and absorbing and getting it that way. That's kind of my first reaction to this question is that I, I do think that writing can be taught. I think the biggest thing that cannot be taught is the, what you absorb from your writing. So if I have a student who does not read in the genre that they're writing in, and I find that quite a bit because I teach you know classes in writing children's books. So if somebody's only reading adult novels and not reading children's books, there's very little that I can do to teach them because I think so much of learning to write well is just reading as much as you possibly can and reading every book you can get your hands on because there is a lot of learning that happens just from reading and absorbing and just that kind of intuitiveness that you get from that. I mean, I think that writing can be taught because I don't, put a lot of stock in so-called like quote talents. I feel like the people who are most successful writing are the people who are persistent and who work the hardest Mm -hmm. at it. There's so much that you cannot control in your writing career, but you know, how you work, how hard you work is is kind of the one thing that you can control. As long as students or writers read a lot, then I definitely think that, you know, all writing can be taught, but without that love for reading and doing it all the time, that's kind of a different story. So Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting. Myself, my opinion has changed because when I first started writing, I absolutely believed that it was more of an innate talent, that it was something that you were born with and that you either could or you couldn't. I might have been 19 or 20, so I had a pretty high opinion of myself. Cracked out a book and I was like, I am amazing. I'm going to win the Pulitzer. Oh my God, that book is so bad. I mean, I went back and I've read (laughs) That book, it actually ended up getting published. It's the female of the species is the very first book I ever wrote. But what is published has absolutely zero in connection with what I wrote 20 years ago. I mean, (laughs) nothing is the same. Except the title, I have to say, I was pretty good with titling that. But it's amazing to me when I went back and I read that manuscript that I had written as a very self-possessed 19-year-old, believing that everything that was necessary to be a writer I had been born with like a gem inside my chest. Right. And then I read this and I'm like, it's bad. Like it's unreadable. It is incredibly bad. People always think that I'm just fake humbling that. And I am not, it is unpublishable mess. My opinion of course has then changed. I have learned how to write, not necessarily by taking classes, but by paying attention. And when I am reading a book mm-hmm. and I love it and I think it's amazing. I ask myself why, why is this amazing? What has this person done? And I will go back and I will look 
at sections that they did a wonderful job at. I was reading, I forget which one. It was one of Diana Gabaldon's Outlander books. She head hopped. She moved from, I think, Claire's perspective to Jamie's perspective. And it wasn't a chapter break. It was in the scene. And I didn't even know it. And I was like two or three pages in and I'm like, hey, wait a minute. This is Jamie talking now. What? It was Claire. What's going on? And I went back to find where she did it because it was so seamless that I didn't feel that bump as a reader. So that is how I learned to write was by paying attention. I will say that while it is effective, it also can absolutely ruin your hobby for you because it's very difficult <laughs> to just read a book and be like, oh, I'm going to relax and read a book now. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite the same. Reading's not quite the same after that. But, I, you know, then I think after a while that becomes even part of the fun of reading, you know, too. <laughs> can be. I have to, I have to say to myself, you're relaxing. You're going to read this book to relax. Because every time I crack a book, I'm walking into a classroom. And that's how I feel. But it's also can be a bit of a terror when it's like, I just want to read a book. So reading outside my genre, reading something I would never write, like a rom-com or nonfiction. I'll read nonfiction. And I'm like, I can just read this. This is cool. So yeah, I'm a weird person. I read nonfiction to give my brain a break. <laughs> That's a good idea, actually. I Try it. It's awesome. You mentioned the writing classes that you teach. You work with the San Diego Continuing Education to provide those writing classes, and they are free. That is a lovely way to give back and provide enrichment for authors who can't afford to pay for classes. So tell us about that experience and tell us about that environment and, and what that is like for you and for them. I feel so lucky every day. Like I don't sometimes I don't even know how I got this job um, because I, I really do. I feel like I have the most wonderful teaching job I could possibly have because the Department of Continuing Ed that I work for is called the Emeritus mm -hmm. Program. And so they're classes for older adults. So we have to keep our classes, at least 50% of our classes have to be age 55 and over. And then we get funding for them so that we're able to offer the classes for free. But anyone who's over 18 can take them. It's just that we have to keep 50% has to be over a certain age. But I mean, it's just been so wonderful because, you know, I feel like everybody who comes to the classes, like really, really wants to be there. It's not the same as teaching in the traditional community college classroom where you have to grade and people are taking it mm -hmm. for credits. People are taking the class because they love to write. I have people sometimes who take off work early to get to class and they really, really want to be there. So it's, it's just been an amazing experience. And also working with so many older adults, the wide breadth of experience that they're bringing to their writing has just been amazing. I mean, for me too, to listen to them when we do, you know, different brainstorming and writing exercises, like the stories that they can tell are just mm -hmm. so fascinating. And it's, it's so interesting to hear about um, all their experiences. So I've just been really, really lucky with the students that I have. Yeah, I think that is interesting when you are talking, especially with older people who are looking to write down family stories, their own experiences, their life stories. I think that can be incredibly motivational and inspiring to help them with that because it's so important. It's such a part of their own life, obviously, but also, you know, they're doing it for posterity. And to make that connection with their children and their grandchildren, I had one lady was telling me the other day, she sent me an email to tell me that, you know, we had done some brainstorming exercises in class. And she said, I still spent the entire afternoon last weekend with my grandchildren, like brainstorming stories, creating these stories together with them and kind of working on making their own little picture books. And it was just the fact that she could take those things that she had done in class and use them in a way to create bridges connection with her Absolutely. grandkids. 
Tell us about what you are working on now and where listeners can find you online. Right now, I'm working on another middle grade novel. It's been really fun because it has some kind of gothic elements to it. So I've been reading a lot in that genre to work on it. But I'm finally settled down now after I finished Unwritten. I was kind of starting and stopping a lot of different projects because I couldn't find my stride again. But now I'm about over 100 pages into that. So I feel like I'm in a really good place. And let's see, online, I am on my website, taragilboy.com, but mostly I am active on Twitter. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting gofundme.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>